Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Again, I want you to see how deep the Old Testament roots go for everything that we've seen in the book of Ruth here. We've gone through the whole narrative, but next weekend's sermon is going to show you the clear bridge from the genealogy at the end of Ruth to the genealogy, uh, really the, the gematria rather, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. So I want you to show how this little love story, this tiny little love story, I, I think it's the most beautiful love story ever written, all of literature. Come at me, Shakespeare. This beautiful love story has I mean, it, it, it builds bridges to the New Testament that affect you and I today. And it also has this redeeming quality that helps bring clarity to some of these Old Testament texts. It's a, it's a beautiful thing when you come upon a passage that's just hard, hard to accept. It may not even be hard to understand. Some, some passages are hard to understand. Other passages are just hard to accept. Some of them are both. They're hard to understand and they're hard to accept. But if you get to these passages and you know that the Lord is good and you keep reading your Bible, you get to the book of Ruth and they become clear. I want to do that backwards. Like now that we've read Ruth, I want you to properly frame some of those difficult to understand passages. Think as we do, uh, as we go through this, of the disciples when Jesus has fed thousands, he's moved to another coast of the Sea of Galilee, and a massive crowd of people follow Jesus. They're like, wow, a guy who makes free food, let's make him king. And then Jesus is skeptical of the large crowd, and he's like, time to thin out the herd. And then he just says something super controversial, and everybody disperses except for the disciples, which by the way, includes Judas. Oh, that's difficult, right? He tells the whole crowd, eat me, drink my blood, you're all going to hell. That's the Jesse Campbell translation. Really, what he tells them is if they don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, that they have no part of it. They, they can't inherit the kingdom of God. And, and the whole crowd says, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? They all turn away and the disciples are there. And then Jesus even pushes against the disciples. He's like, are you gonna turn away? Are you gonna leave too? And then Peter, kind of as the advocate for the group, basically says, no, G Jesus, you're the only one in whom the words of life are found. They didn't understand what Jesus just said, telling everybody to eat him and drink his blood. I call that the zombie discourse. It would not be until they got to John chapter 13, the upper room, the Passover meal that would lead to the crucifixion. It would not be until that moment that it became clear. He was talking about communion. He was talking about the Passover meal where the bread is his body, the cup is his blood because they stayed with Jesus, trusting him, even though they didn't understand what he said. Am I preaching to anybody right now? Like, you don't understand what God said, but you know that he's good. You know that nobody else has the words of life. So you stick with him. Then you see, oh, with perfect clarity. Even that shocking teaching where Jesus told everybody to eat him and drink his blood, even that, even that comes into focus and ends up being quite redeeming and beautiful. And as they take the elements of the Passover meal and they give today the church, right? These ordinances whereby we now today eat in remembrance of Jesus and drink in remembrance of Jesus as often as we do. It's actually quite beautiful. But at the time, the testing of the faith was shocking. It was difficult to accept. It was difficult to understand for crying out loud. In fact, it may have been quite easy to understand and impossible to accept 
which is advocating cannibalism? It sounded, on surface level, exactly like that, but that couldn't be the case. So what was that all about? I don't understand, but I'm gonna stick with you, Jesus, and it will become clear. The same is true of Deuteronomy 25. Okay, here's Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse one. If there's a dispute between men, they are to go to court and the judges will hear their case. They will clear the innocent and condemn the guilty. So far, so good, right? I mean, this, by the way, was hugely revolutionary. I mean, it sounds to you and I pretty basic, but that's because we're quite privileged and that we grow up, you know, with, a, with at least some semblance of a justice system. It's not perfect, never has been, won't be this side of heaven, but it's a lot better than ancient Babylon. That's who you contrast this with. Contrast ancient Israel, not with modern America, but with Sumeria, with the Babylonians, okay? That they would have uh, a judge who would hear a case and clear the innocent and condemn the guilty made them eons ahead of every other society in the world at the time. If the guilty party deserves to be flogged, the judge will make him lie down and be flogged in his presence with the number of lashes appropriate for his crime. He may be flogged with 40 lashes, but no more. Otherwise, if he's flogged with more lashes than these, your brother will be degraded in your sight. Do not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Go back and look again at our series in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, Paul used this teaching to lay the foundation for the proper payment of pastors. And it comes up again in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. But it all originally began with this prescription for corporal punishment as, as prescribed by a judge. And uh, Paul uses this text and says, look, you think it, it, God's concerned about oxen? It's not about the oxen, it's about the man. See to it that he's not stripped of his dignity in your sight. We've also talked about how this foreshadows Christ on the cross because he would receive the 40 lashes minus one. Paul, in chronicling his own persecutions, would receive this punishment as well numerous times. When, the brother, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. Okay, here's the book of Ruth laid out for us. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Yeah, but Jesse, why then is... Why, why then is the son of Ruth and Boaz not named Mahlon? Why is he named Obed? Well, Obed would be considered Obed in honor of Mahlon. And Mahlon's name would be on, say, the title deed to the piece of property, which Boaz has purchased, by the way. So it's, uh, Mahlon's name is not removed from Israel. Elimelech's name is not removed from that piece of land, that promised land that was given by God to his covenant people, even in the era of the judges. And the genealogies that we see, we know that Boaz is in fact the biological father. So insofar as it pertains to genealogical lines, you are remembered for your contributions, Boaz, but Mahlon's name is always there, isn't it? I mean, we're naming him right now. We're talking about him today. So even though Obed has his own name and he's not Mahlon Jr., all right, uh, Mahlon for real this time, Mahlon returns, revenge of Mahlon, <laughs> whatever you wanna call him, he has his own name, we remember Mahlon because of Obed. 
But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of the city will summon him and speak, to, uh, speak with him. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him inside of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. Then she will declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed. If two men are fighting with each other and the wife of one steps in to rescue her husband, from the one striking him and she puts out her hand and grabs his genitals you are to cut off her hand do not show pity we've exposited, exposited verses 1 and 12 uh, 11 and 12 before showing how it foreshadows the brutality of the cross is the only time that mutilation has ever been prescribed in the old testament i don't believe that it was ever fully enacted but I wanna talk about this example, this preservation of the family line, this proviso in the instance that leveret marriage fails, not because the policy fails, but because the man refuses, like Onan, okay, whom we saw in Genesis chapter uh, 38 last week. It is declared that his name would be changed, that he, his family line would be changed, according to Deuteronomy 25.10, the house of the man whose sandal was removed, okay? If you're just reading Deuteronomy, this is gonna seem really weird, right? But now that we've read Ruth, it just clicks perfectly into place. Now that we've read Ruth, we understand this bit about sandals being removed, okay? <laughs> like it's a good thing that Boaz followed through, otherwise he would have been spat he would have, he would have been, he would have uh, had Ruth spit in his face, or, or perhaps Naomi would have been entitled to spit in Boaz's face, but there's no face spitting involved. In fact, there is a trading of sandals. We saw this in, in Ruth chapter four in our sermon this past weekend, right? That it, it may contextually seem odd to you and I, but really it was directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. This was a means of solidifying real estate transactions. It was proven to be true. It was also before we had, you know, uh, microbiology as a field of study. So we can see in Deuteronomy 25, what would have happened had Boaz not followed through. Deuteronomy 25 suddenly then becomes quite beautiful because we now see its antithesis in Boaz the man who does follow through, who does redeem the bride. He does trade sandals before the elders of the city gate, and uh, Ruth is not like the poor woman described here in Deuteronomy 25, all right? Look at that, man. If you don't understand a passage of scripture, stick with the Bible, it will become clear. After Deuteronomy comes Joshua. After Joshua comes Judges. After Judges comes Ruth. So it's just a few books away these verses would come into beautiful clarity. Look at that, the word of God is perfect.